Joshua chapter 12. We're going to cover chapters 12 and 13 today. Never been done in the history of reality ever that we have covered two chapters. I mean, it takes us hours to get through two verses, much less two chapters. Uh, but we'll do it, and in a timely fashion. The Lord has given me a plan, and I think it's all going to fit together nicely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And really, it's like pulling up to your favorite restaurant when you're just starving. That's what it's like to open your word for us. It's so wonderful. It nourishes our soul so immensely. And, and some of us are famished, really, for your word today. And we need to hear from you, Lord. We've come here desperate to hear from you. We're like the woman that was pursuing after you that knew if she could just touch the hem of your robe that something would happen. Many of us have come here in that fashion, just seeking, just needing, just wanting. Lord, we thank you that you're able to meet all our needs and that in you we are completely satisfied. We thank you that you have chosen to enter into relationship with us, Lord. And others of us, Lord, we're, we're pretty, we've been eating your word, we're well fed and we're healthy, but there's some refining that needs to happen. There's some fitness that needs to take place. Would you speak to those as well, Lord? We believe today that your word is living and active and awesome and able to do incredible things in our lives. And so, Lord, I would, before the congregation that I love with every fiber of my being, ask that you would please anoint me to communicate your word, that it would be all of you and none of me. Lord, I ask as John the Baptist did, that I might decrease that you would increase in our midst and that your people would be blessed by your spirit working through your word. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. Listen, we're not going to read all the verses in 12 and 13. We're just going to reference them, so I want you to go read them later on. It's just not uh, possible to do it in a timely manner here, so that's your assignment later on. Read them, but we'll tell you about the necessary details. In Joshua chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated, and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all of the Arabah to the east. Okay, so we're talking about here the region of the Middle East that is just immediately to the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, we've been journeying through seven years of, Israel, of the Israelites' life here in the book of Joshua. For seven years, they've been in the land of Canaan. They've been fighting the battles. The Lord has given them a great victory. Now there's a shift in the book. So now there's going to be in chapter 12 a recounting of the victories and all the kings that they defeated. But before they ever came into the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan, there were some victories that they got on the east side of the Jordan under the leadership of Moses. Now, the area to the east of the Jordan River is still part of the promised land. But it's not part of the land of Canaan proper. That's generally and most specifically the area east of, or excuse me, west of the Jordan River where they were first supposed to go in and take possession. But you'll remember from our previous studies that all of the land that was promised was much bigger than just the strip of land, the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan, much bigger than the Israel that you see today. It was an enormous amount of land that was, and still is, promised to Israel. Let's take a look at it on the map up here. The red outline there 
is the land promised to Israel. We read about the details in Joshua 1.4 and other places. You'll notice that it includes the Sinai Peninsula down on the lower left-hand bottom. It includes part of Saudi Arabia on the right. It includes about half of modern-day Iraq, all of Jordan, about 80% of Syria, all of Lebanon, and part of modern Turkey. Is the land that was promised to Israel by God. That larger area is popularly referred to as Eretz Yisrael Hashlema, the greater land of Israel. Eretz Yisrael Hashlema. You want to try it? Eretz Yisrael Hashlema, greater Israel. That is the region that is the land promised to the people of Israel. Tragically, all that they ever took hold of is that little blue encircled area to the left, the left center there. The height of the land that they possessed was under Solomon, but that's about all that they ever possessed. Remember, ownership and possession are two different things. God gave them Eretz Yisrael Hashlema, greater Israel. They owned it. They still do technically because God gave it to them, own it. But all they've ever possessed is about that amount in the Old Testament. And now today, modern Israel is just a little bit more than that. But do you remember the first time that we looked at this map? Probably not. It was our first study in the book of Joshua a long time ago. But at that time, we wanted to make an analogy to our lives. We said, what if we were to map out all that God has for us in Christ Jesus? What would that look like? It would be like that red portion there. It would be huge. It would be all of these promises, the full inheritance for the Christian in Christ Jesus. And then we said, probably if we were to be honest and map out what we have really laid hold of, what we've really take possession of, what we're really walking in would probably be a significantly smaller portion. And tragically so. Just as it was tragic that Israel never laid hold of all the land. All they had to do was possess it by faith. God told Joshua, wherever you put your feet, that's going to be yours. They were never obedient to get all of what God had for them. And so it's often similar in our lives, and tragically so. The goal of the Christian life is to lay hold of practically what Jesus Christ has accomplished positionally for us. All the riches of God in Christ Jesus. And so I want to bring this map to your attention again. And I just want to ask you, are you pursuing after all that the Lord has for you? Even the Apostle Paul says, I haven't attained to it yet. None of us has probably attained to all that we have in Christ Jesus. But are you pursuing after? That's the question. That's the important thing. Are you pursuing after the Lord hard? Or are you sort of lackadaisical in your Christianity? Are you just sort of meandering? You'll still get to heaven. Lord still loves you. You'll still be blessed. But there's just some things you're going to miss out on. The fullness of all that God has for you. And I want Eretz Yisrael Hashlema. I want the greater portion, everything that the Lord has for me. Amen? Now, transitioning. Before the death of Moses, while the children of Israel were just finishing up their wilderness wanderings on the east side of the Jordan River, they did defeat two kings on the east side there. And that was Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. Now, those kings are mentioned in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 12. We're not going to read it, but that's where those two kings 
that the Israelites conquered under Moses before Joshua was the leader were, and it talks there about their territory. And that territory looks like this on the map. That portion to your right, I don't know if you could see it, but it was just highlighted in a green color. So all to the right of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee was an area that was conquered by Israel before the leadership of Joshua. Now look what it says in verse 6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them. Okay, that is Sihon and Og. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. Now, do you remember the story of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? That's a very important one, and they're brought up here again, so I just want to remind us of that story and draw some analogies, perhaps, to our life. The story is found in Numbers 32, verses 1 through 22. We won't turn there now, but you might want to read it later. We've read it in previous studies. But basically, Israel under the leadership of Moses is heading toward the land of Canaan. They're heading toward the promise. They know that the ultimate goal is to cross over the Jordan and possess the land of Canaan. But the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gab and half of the tribe of Manasseh come to Moses and say, Moses, we have a lot of livestock. And we have a lot of possessions. They were wealthy tribes, these two and a half tribes. We have a lot of stuff. And we're here on the east side of the Jordan River. And we're looking around at this land. And we've already beat up these kings. And you know what? This land looks pretty good to us. This is really enough for us, Moses. We don't desire to go any further. We have a lot of stuff. It'd be easier for us if we just settle down with our stuff in this comfortable place. We don't want to go across the Jordan. And Moses said, oh, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, don't do that. That is a sin against the Lord. God's will for his people Israel at this juncture in history is that we all go over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan and begin to take possession from there. That's God's plan for your life. Why are you rebelling against the Lord? This is the same sort of rebellion as your fathers in Numbers 13 and 30, uh, Numbers 13 and 14, when they refused to enter the promised land the first time because of a lack of faith. Moses said to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, do not do this. You must go over and just obey the Lord. That's his plan for your life. And they blatantly said to Moses, no, we're not going. We don't want to go. We have a lot of stuff, and this land is good enough for us. We'd rather just settle right here. Now, what's amazing in the continuation of that story is this, that the Lord, and subsequently Moses, allowed them to do so. I hate that. The Lord allowed them to settle. God's best and highest for them was to cross the Jordan and to begin to take possession from there. That was God's plan for them. And when they came to the Lord via Moses and said, we don't want your plan for us, this looks better to us, the Lord said, okay, if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get. And he allowed them to settle on the east side of the Jordan. Now that was a monumental compromise in their lives. God always has for you his first best in his heart. 
He wants you to attain to. He wants you to experience. He wants you to walk in his best and his highest. He is your loving heavenly father. And every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights above. Amen. And he has good things stored up for you. But sometimes in our lives, we say, Lord, it's far enough for me right here. I don't want to go any further. I'm comfortable now. I have a lot of possessions now. And I don't want to go anymore. We've been going with you for a long time. And so we choose to settle and we compromise. And the Lord in his amazing sovereignty and wisdom honors free will. He didn't force them. He allowed them to settle in that place. So what they then got effectively is second best for their life. First best would have been to follow the Lord's plan and to cross over and take possession from there. What they ended up with because of their compromise, because they chose to walk by sight and not by faith. You see, they couldn't see what was on the other side of the Jordan. They had only heard rumors, but they saw what was before them. And so they went with what they could see instead of what the Lord said. The Lord says repeatedly through scripture, my people shall walk by faith, not by sight. They wanted to walk by sight. And they settled for second best. Now, God is so good and merciful and kind. They would still be blessed. They would just be less blessed than their brothers who entered in. And you say, what's so bad about that? I mean, second best can't be all that bad. I mean, God's, you know, first has got to be awesome. And so second best, what's the big deal? Well, there were a couple things for them. Number one, the Lord required of them that even though they would settle on the east side of the Jordan, their men would still have to cross the Jordan with the rest of Israel to help their brothers fight the battles. The Lord required of that of them. So they still had all the battles of Canaan, but none of the blessings of Canaan. You see, sometimes we choose to compromise because we don't want to battle anymore. We're weary from the battle. We don't want to press in. We don't want to labor anymore. What we don't realize is we're still going to have all the battles in the place of compromise, but we miss out on the blessings. They still had to go in, and for seven years, their men fought and died with Israel while their women and children stayed behind. For seven years, all the battles, none of the blessings. That's a tragedy of compromise. We think it's going to make our life easier, but in God's economy, it doesn't. The best place to be is the Lord's place for you. That's going to bring the greatest degree of rest to your life. Now, the second thing that was tragic about this compromise is that their children, they and their children, were forever separated now from the corporate worship life of Israel. They were forever separated from the corporate worship life of Israel because the ark would go over into Canaan, Canaan, excuse me. It would cross the Jordan. And later on, uh, the, the tabernacle would be erected there. And then subsequently, the temple would be there in Jerusalem on the west side of the Jordan. And when they settled on the east side, they separated themselves from the God-ordained and structured worship life of Israel. And what they would find is that their kids would begin to grow up without a proper knowledge of who the Lord was and what the Lord had done and what it was like to be among the Lord's people and the blessings of being in the Lord's place at the Lord's time. And they would later on in the, chap in the book of Joshua, we'll get to it in several weeks, they would discover the tragedy of that and they would seek to erect an altar for themselves on the east side of the Jordan. It was an unauthorized altar. It was not ordained by God. 
And the rest of Israel would come back and seek to beat up on them for that. But it was a desperate move. Because of their compromise, they got themselves hemmed in and cut off from intimacy with the Lord. In that day, it wasn't like it is now, that you could worship the Lord anywhere. It was ordained that you would worship the Lord at the tent of meeting, where the ark was, where God had set up that structure. And so really, by their compromise, by their settling, they removed themselves from a proper worship life and communion with the Lord. And the ones that ultimately suffered were their children. Our compromise has great effect on the generation to come, if not corrected. The third thing that was tragic about their settling is that the place they chose to settle had no natural boundaries to the east of them. You see, those that crossed over into the Jordan, they would have, or into Canaan, excuse me, would have the natural boundary of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, so on and so forth, and even a mountain range is just on the other side of, of the Jordan. But they now on their eastern border, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh would have no natural eastern boundary. And what this did was it left them significantly more exposed to the enemy. And what we see in their life is that they definitely had more trouble with the enemy than they would have had if they had just obeyed the Lord. Now that's a truth you can bank on. We will have more trouble with the enemy, Satan, when we walk in disobedience than we will if we will just obey the Lord. Why? Because we leave ourselves open to the attack. We make ourselves significantly more susceptible to the schemes of the enemy when we refuse to go to the place where the Lord wants us to be, spiritually speaking. And the fourth thing that was tragic was this. Years later, a real big enemy, the Assyrian kingdom, would turn its eye on Israel. And the Assyrians would come over and into attack the Israelites, and they would eventually carry them away uh, into captivity, but the first ones that fell when the enemy came hard were the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. When the Assyrians evaded in 722 BC, they and their families were the first to fall, and they were removed from that land that was so precious in their sight, and they would never return there again. We're told the story in First Chronicles 5. So what seemed in their own wisdom to be so wonderful ended up being horrible for them and their children. They still had to do all the battles, but they had none of the blessings. They were removed from the worship life and their children suffered. They were continually exposed to the enemy and ultimately the enemy vanquished them from that place that they so cherish and clung to. Now this would be a good juncture for us to take uh, just a little bit of stock of our lives. Are there any areas where you've settled or are currently settling or are, you know, you're heading toward compromise? I mean, you're just going to have to think before the Lord. You're going to have to pray and say, Lord, is there any area where I'm compromising right now? An area that's going to allow me to be embroiled in all sorts of battles, but cause me to miss out on so many blessings. An area that's going to affect the life of my children. It's going to hem me in and cut me off from intimacy with the Lord. An area that leaves me open to the schemes of the enemies. Are there any areas where you're compromising or settling or have settled? You want to deal with those today. Because the word of God instructs us very clearly that though it seemed right in the sight of man, 
It was destructive for their lives. The Lord knows best. His commands for us are life. They are not burdensome, but they are freedom to you and I. Amen? So they settled, tragically, in the area east of the Jordan where Sihon and Og, those kings, were defeated under the leadership of Moses. Now look at verse 7. Now these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west. Okay, so now we have Jordan, I mean, we have the crossing of the Jordan, we have Joshua in leadership, and now in verses 8 through 16, we're not going to read it, but we just have a list of cities that were conquered under the leadership of Joshua. These are the cities in the southern portion of the land of Canaan. You remember that each one of these cities was a city-state, they were a city kingdom, they had kings over them. So what we see right here is there were 16 kings and cities that were defeated in verses 8 through 16. We'll just show you what it looks like on the map. There you see it in the left-hand lower portion, the southern region of the land of, King, of uh, Canaan that was conquered by Joshua and the Israelites. And then in verses 17 through 24, we have a list of the kings and the cities that were conquered in the north region of Canaan. And it looks like this on the map. So there you have it on the north. And so they once conquered that area after they conquered all the kings in the regions to the south. And then if you put them all together, you see that they conquered this full region here, north, south, and even that region east of Jericho. 33 kings in all. Two on the east side of the Jordan and 31 on the west side of the Jordan. Now, chapter 12 that you'll just read later as we just sort of gave you a summary of represents seven years, a little bit more, of the faithfulness of God. Each one of those cities that is very carefully listed, it's been 3,400 years since the book of Joshua was written. 3,400 years, and we have in front of us a meticulous list of cities and kings that were conquered. Each one of those names that are meaningless to most of you. You're not familiar with the geography of the land, much less the ancient geography, that's fine. But each one of those represents a battle in the life of Israel where they had to trust and obey the Lord and where the Lord proved himself faithful. So those are not insignificant names. Those things are not superfluous. It's important in chapter 12 that we see every one of those is a portrait of God's faithfulness and a picture of his ability to make good on his promises. And they are carefully recorded here for all time that God's people might remember and rejoice in the fact that he is absolutely faithful. Amen? Now, this would be a good juncture for you to do this. To begin to think upon all the victories that Jesus Christ has given you in your life. To begin to think upon all the good things that the Lord has done. There's been some big battles there are some big battles. There's been some difficult times. There's been some scary times. There's been tumultuous times. There's been times where he felt like the disciples in the fourth watch of the night out on the Sea of Galilee, tossing and turning. There's been difficult times, but the Lord in your life has been faithful because he is. You might not see it yet, but take hope. Did not the psalmist say, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That means in this lifetime. 
Take hope in the Lord. Let your heart hope in Him. Wait on the Lord. You might not see it yet, but the Bible says victory is yours. The Lord is not done. He is faithful to complete the good work that he's begun in you. But don't let the battle that you are currently fighting from a place of victory cloud your vision of the victories that God has already given you. It's good to look back and rejoice in what God has done. It's good to remember the depth from which he's brought you. It's good to remember the addictions that you are once in and say, the Lord delivered me. It's good to remember that sin that you were so entangled in and say, the Lord took me out of that trap and that snare. It's good to remember the way that he's healed you physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's good to remember the times that were lean and how he miraculously provided for you. It's good to remember the people that you prayed for and they got saved. It's good to remember, if nothing else, that you're alive today and your body is functioning and you can open your mouth and praise the Lord. We've got to call to mind such things because this whole chapter by the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is dedicated to remembering what God had done in the life of Israel. And so I want you to meditate on those things today. Now chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You're old and advanced in years. Now that's funny to me. Listen, if the Lord tells you you're old, you're really old because the Lord is the ancient of days. When the Lord says, Joshua, you're old. That's when you know you're super old. The Lord comes to Joshua. By the way, he's about 100 years old right here. The Lord comes to Joshua and says, you're old and advanced in years. And here's the important point. Very much of the land remains to be possessed. Now, we were already told in, in verse 23 of chapter 11, that they possessed the land. That, that means that they, they, had, they had broken the power structure that existed in the land. When they got the victory over all those kings, those 33 kings, they broke the power structure that existed in the land. But they didn't have enough people, and they haven't had enough time yet to settle, to possess literally every nook and cranny of the land yet. And so they've gotten the victory, they've broken the powers, the structure, they've conquered, but now that victory needs to be appropriated to all the little places in the land of Canaan. That victory now needs to be appropriated. They've got to go into all the little nooks and crannies as they divide up the land by tribes and lay hold of those places that they've conquered. They need to possess them. They need to position themselves in them. Now, this is analogous to the Christian life. You see, Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, has already given us the victory over the spiritual land, so to speak. Amen? We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. It is finished. It has been accomplished. 2 Peter 1.3 says, We have all that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. It is already done. The power structure of sin has been broken in our lives. Amen? Those kings of sin have been defeated in our lives. But now what we need to do is to appropriate that victory to every area of our life. There's much of the spiritual landscape that still needs to be possessed. We need to apply the victory of the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to every area of our life. We are already victorious. We're already seated in the heavenlies. Again, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. 
But we need to fight nonetheless. And we need to lay hold of, by faith, the victory of Jesus Christ over sin, death, and the devil for every area of our lives. We need to not leave any place still in the hands of the enemy. You see, it was for freedom's sake that Jesus set us free. It's for freedom's sake that he set us free. Don't leave any portion of your life in subjection to the enemy. Don't let him rule and reign in any little nook and cranny. Don't let him try to come in and reoccupy the ground that Jesus Christ took upon the cross for you. Don't let him do it. He will try to do it. There were inhabitants and still kings and areas who would want to come in and usurp the new authority of Israel and try to take some of that ground back. And the enemy will try to usurp the place of Jesus Christ on the throne of your life and try to take back ground. But you've been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. Do not let sin reign over you, is what Romans 6 says. The power structure of sin has been broken in our lives. So this would be a good point to think about. Are there any unsettled or unpossessed areas of your life? Some area where, you know, you've just failed to bring it into the sovereignty of the Lord. You've just somehow withheld it from him. You're the Lord's to be sure. You're already seated in the heavenlies. He's broken the power structure of sin, death, and the devil in your life. But you've never laid hold of by faith this one area. You, you've let it remain in subjection to the enemy. Are there any areas in your life where the victory of the cross still needs to be appropriated? Today would then be a good day to do that. Now, the rest of Joshua 13. As I said earlier, these verses begin a section of the book of Joshua in which the details of the victory are portrayed for us. What the details are is how the land was divided up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. It's going to go all the way through chapter 21. The dividing up of the land for the 12 tribes of Israel, their territories, their inheritance. Joshua now has a change in job title. He still works for the Lord, but he's not the military commander for Israel anymore. He's now the administrator for Israel anymore. He, he's been for seven years as great military commander. Now he's about 100 years old. And his job shifts to that of administration. And he's going to have to oversee the allotment of various portions of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to disperse their inheritance to them. And we're not going to read all of Joshua 13. And I'll be honest with you. From here, Joshua 13 to Joshua 21, there's some tedious reading. Some just long lists of names, just hundreds of place names that you can't pronounce and you don't know. And you can look them up and study them, and I'll do that, and you ought to do that too. And that's awesome, and that's wonderful. But we're not going to take time to read all of them right here. But that is not to say that they are superfluous or insignificant. What the great detail in chapters 13 through 21 of the dividing up of the land represent is an ancient land deed. This is a 3,400-year-old legal document of sorts in front of us. An ancient document that says, hey, this is who owns this portion of land. Here's the boundary marker of their land. It's been surveyed, it's been marked out, it's been allotted, and now it's been written down. This is a property deed, so to speak. 
And it's a very important historical document, just as meaningful as some of your documents are in your life. You know, there's certain things that you would go and get if there was a fire, and there's certain possessions that the Lord has given you that are very meaningful to you and your family. And these are the possessions of Israel in the book of Joshua, and the rest of chapter 13, all the way through 21, and it's important. One author says this about this portion. In chapter 13, he says, This was a climactic moment in the life of a young nation. After centuries in Egyptian bondage, decades in the barren wilderness, years of hard fighting in Canaan, the hour had arrived when the Israelites could at last settle down and build homes, cultivate the soil, raise families, and live in peace in their own land. The days of land allotment were a happy time for Israel. So that's what's going to happen all the way to chapter 21. And we'll just clean up the details right here in chapter 13. Chapter 13 only takes care of the land, of allo- the land allotment for those tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan. The Gadites, the Reubenites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Chapter 13 and all those place names and those details are the boundaries of their possession. Isn't it kind of the Lord? That even though they settled, even though they compromised, even though they blew it, the Lord still allowed them to have a possession in the land. He really did. That was very kind of the Lord. It wasn't God's best for them. It was God's second best. It was costly to them. But nonetheless, the Lord was merciful, and they got an allotment of land. And here it is on the map for you, so we don't have to read all of it. Manasseh, up on the north there to the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee, Gad all along the east side of the Jordan River, and Reuben down toward the Dead Sea. That was the land that was allotted to them. There's just a couple verses here that I want to end with in uh, chapter 13. I want to draw your attention to verse 13 of chapter 13. Verse 13 says, But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Maacathites, for Geshur and Maacath, however you say that, live among Israel unto this day. I want to say something about that verse. This verse represents a place where the Israelites failed to appropriate the victory in their lives. They failed to take possession of it. They owned that area, but they never went in and really took hold of it. It represents those yet unpossessed areas of our lives where we haven't brought the, under the Lord's sovereignty. The Holy Spirit's very careful to mention their failure there. They went in, they were given this territory, but they failed to dispossess those certain peoples. Now, Whenever Israel did this, and they've done it a lot of times in the Old Testament, whenever they did this, it always came back to bite them with great consequence. You can read about it in the opening chapters of the book of Judges, which is the book after Joshua, where Manasseh failed to drive out certain people groups and in the region of Bethshan there and the Gadites and and other Reubenites. And then what happened was this. Because they failed to drive those people out, idolatry, still was in the land. And you remember that this idolatry involved horrific sexual immorality and child sacrifice. And because these people were not conquered and dispossessed, there was a stronghold of that in the land. And when this Joshua generation dies out, we're told in Judges chapter 2 
that the next generation didn't know the Lord and they immediately fell into the religious life of those people that weren't removed. Which means they fell into sexual immorality and murder of the children. They immediately fell away from the Lord because Israel just said, ah, we don't need to possess that area. And that compromised area became a stronghold. And the enemy just waited until that zealous Joshua generation died out and came in and took advantage of the next generation. And they fell hard. In the book of Judges, it says, and the Lord's hand was against them. Their rebellion was so reviling before the Lord, so utterly unspeakable. And it was because of that little compromise. You see how important it is to not leave those unchecked areas in our lives, to not make an opportunity for the flesh, to be in a relationship of accountability with some other men, some other women, to make yourself transparent, accountable, open, to have somebody who can check you, who can check in, who can check up, to endeavor in your own heart to bring the totality of your life under the sovereignty of the Lord because those unchecked areas always come back to bite us. It's just the way sin works. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 22. On a positive note, it says, The sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner, with the sword among the rest of their slain. They killed thousands and thousands of people. But the Holy Spirit sees fit to mention that Balaam was killed. Why? Because he was a diviner. He was involved in witchcraft. The Holy Spirit is careful to mention here that Israel did a good thing in cutting off anything that had to do with the devil from their lives. Now, that's real good. Anything that had to do with witchcraft in their lives. You know, it's become very popular in our culture to romanticize witches and witchcraft. Popular media has done it with movies, with the greatest selling book series in the history of the world. Popular media has done it with television shows and with all sorts of marketing toward our children. And I'm miffed at how often Christians participate in these things. I'm astounded at how often they participate in these things. Yes, it's easy to say on the top, oh, it's harmless, it's no big deal, but wait a minute. What's behind it? And even if you don't believe that there's some power of witchcraft working behind it, well, what does it represent before our Jesus Christ, who died on the cross that we would be free from such powers? What horrors does it represent to the Lord? Those things represent the very enemies of our God. And so why would we make friendly with the enemies of our Savior? Why would we make light of those things? And yet we do so often, probably more than we ought to. I myself, I'm guilty of such things. And I'm reminded by this verse that the Holy Spirit said, yeah, they cut off the diviner. Those things and those ones having to do with witchcraft and the things of the enemy, they dealt with those. And I've been reminded in my life to deal with those things. The ones that seem the most dangerous are the ones that seem insignificant. It's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And the last couple of verses I want to draw your attention to, verse 14 of chapter 13. Okay, remember, it's a dividing up of the land to the different tribes. Now it mentions the tribe of Levi. It says, but to the tribe of Levi, in verse 14, to the tribe of Levi, Joshua did not give an inheritance, 
The offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as the Lord spoke to Joshua. And then look what it says in verse 33. It reiterates itself here, but a little different dimension. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he had promised them. Now that's interesting. You remember that the Levites were, were the priestly tribe. They're one of the 12 tribes of Israel. All the 12 tribes would get an allotment of land except for the Levites. They were the priests. They were the servants in the corporate worship life of Israel. Now they will be later on, and we'll see it in the weeks to come, be given some cities because they need a place to live and they want to live with each other. It's their family. They will be given some cities and some pasture lands because they need a place for their livestock to graze, and that, that's fine. They're given some cities and some pasture land, but they weren't given a big chunk of land like the others. They had something very special as ones who were chosen to and endeavored to serve the Lord. It says in verse 14 that the sacrifices and the offering were theirs. That when Israel brought an offering to the Lord at the tent of meeting, that the Levites, by the divine ordination of God, would benefit from those offerings. Paul in the New Testament said it this way, those who spend their life for the gospel should make their living from the gospel. And so when the offerings and the fact sacrifices were brought because they committed their days and their life to serving the Lord, that was how they maintained a livelihood. Now, more wonderfully in our eyes is the second point. They were entrusted with the priesthood of the Lord. It says that in chapter 18, verse 7. That was part of their inheritance. Part of their inheritance were, were, were the tithes and the offerings and sacrifices. But the other part was just the fact that they got to serve the Lord. That's the way it ought to be said. They got to serve the Lord. What a wonderful privilege that you can serve the Lord. Now, any one of you, according to New Testament theology, can serve the Lord full time. The New Testament has a doctrine called the priesthood of the saints, that every Christian is a priest, so to speak. We're all called to the work of the kingdom. It was different in the Old Testament. And it's different in some man-made religious structures. But in the economy of God, by the ordination of God, there is a doctrine of the priesthood of the saints, which means that every Christian is in full-time ministry. And the place where you spend your day in your life is your ministerial responsibility. It won't look like the temple in the Old Testament. It won't look like the church building of Reality Carpinteria. But the building is not the church. You are the church. And you are called to do the work of the ministry. And in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4 says that the job of the leaders of the church is to equip the people of the church to do the work of the ministry. You see, there's a shift from the Old Testament. We're not called to do the work of the ministry. So often the church says, well, you know, Britt and G and Ryan and Dom and Sean and Hetty and Carol and Josh and, and all those guys and Chris and Matt, they are the full-time staff members. They should do the work of the ministry. When in reality, our biblical calling is to equip you guys to do the work of the ministry. There's a shift now. The ministry is yours. Your inheritance, part of it in Christ Jesus is your service to the Lord. And it's in whatever context. You work at Raytheon, that's your context. You work at the state park, that's your context. You work at an auto body place, that's your context. 
You work as a CPA, that's your context. You're a mom, you've got kids, that's your context. You're a husband with a wife, that's your context. You go to school, that's your context. The context where the Lord has you right now, not later, is your ministry. The tragedy of modern Christianity is that very few Christians ever lay hold of the doctrine of the priesthood of saints. Very few recognize that part of your inheritance in Christ Jesus is the work of the ministry. They expect others to do it, and so the kingdom does not advance as it ought within your sphere of influence. But part of their inheritance was that they got to serve the Lord. And the last thing was that it says in verse 33, the Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance. That's the part I love the most. They didn't get a big chunk of land like Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites and Ephraim and all the other tribes. What The Lord was their portion. I love that. That's true for you and I. Regardless of what we may have or not have in this lifetime, for you and I who have been brought back into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord is our portion. Amen? The Lord is our portion. He's the one in whom we hope. He's the only one who can satisfy us. He is our love in our life. The Lord is our portion. When we get skewed in our perspective, and we start to look for satisfaction and fulfillment and wholeness and meaning and other things, it will always leave us wanting. It will always leave us wanting. It doesn't matter what it is. You could be rich and famous and whatever it is. But if you don't let the Lord be your portion, you will never be satisfied in where the Lord wants you to be. The Lord is our portion. And I look at the dichotomy. Between the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, who said, we want this, and the Lord gave them what they wanted. And the Levites, who said, we'll serve the Lord, and who got so much more. The Lord gave to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and, and the half-tribe of Manasseh what they wanted. The Levites said, we'll just take what we get. And they got the greater portion. They got the Lord. Did not Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other junk will be added unto you? Bad translation. All the other stuff will be added unto you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough drama of its own. Bad translation. Enough care of its own. Each day has enough trouble. So I just love the fact that their portion was the Lord. Now, every one of you has a white piece of paper in the chair in front of you and also a little golf pencil there. I want you to take out that piece of paper right now. Take out that piece of paper in some sort of writing utensil. And because chapters 12 and 13 make note of some very important things in the life of Israel, we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to have you guys now write down some stuff. Some stuff that in the message just now I told you to think about. So the first thing that I'm going to have you write down is what the good things are the Lord has done in your life. Thinking about the Levites and their inheritance. What good things has God put, rather, in your life? Your portion your inheritance, the presence of the Lord. The second thing I'm going to have you take note of is the victories that God has given you in your life. The victories that he's given you. What does your chapter 12 look like? 
What does your chapter 12 look like? It's just a list of victories that the Lord gave them. I want you to think real hard. If you can't think of any, you got to think harder. You got to pray. Because I'm telling you, there are some of you are Christian. The fact that you're not going to hell ought to be the first one on the list. And so we're going to make a list of good things God has put in our life, victories God has given us, and I encourage you guys to really boast in the Lord. The Psalms tell us to do so. Psalm 66, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. Psalm 96 says, tell of his glory among the nations and his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Psalm 92, for thou, O Lord, has made me glad by what thou hast done, and I will sing for joy at the work of thy hands. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And Psalm 111, praise the Lord, I'll give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. Look at this. They are to be studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. So I am encouraging you to remember what the Lord has done in your life. And to write them down. How can you study if you don't write them down? To write down the good things that the Lord has done in your life. And then, you know, I want to accentuate the positive there because I just do. I think that's good for us today. But you might want to write down on the other side any areas that are yet to be possessed in your life. You haven't laid hold of it by faith. You haven't brought it under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, under his lordship yet. And then lastly, make note of any area where you may be choosing to settle at this time. Finding yourself on the east side when you should be on the west side. So I'm going to give you a few minutes now to write down the good things the Lord has put in your life, make a list of the victories, and then you might make for yourself a cautionary prayer note of any unsettled or compromised areas. Take a few minutes. That's your spiritual landscape.